The reading is Genesis 27, verses 1 to 35, and can be found on page 28 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are on the screen. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for his elder son Esau and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and your bow and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare, for me, prepare me some tasty food to eat, so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully, and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock, and bring me two choice young goats, so that I can prepare some tasty food for your father, just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat, so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him, and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And she prepared some tasty food, just the way his father liked it. Then Rebecca took the best clothes of her elder son Esau, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goatskins. Then she handed to her son, Jacob, the tasty food and the bread she had made. He went to his father and said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you, are, you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. 
Are you really my son Esau? He asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat, so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him, and he ate. And he brought some wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac had finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, Please sit up and eat some of my game, so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted the game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, and thank you so much for the invitation to come. I turned on the radio last Sunday morning, as I do on Sunday mornings, to listen to the service, and it was just an amazing service from Platt. Thank you so much for all those who took part, for the musicians, the preaching. But that tremendous witness, it was a great service. Thank you for your ministry in this city, which is really significant. Actually, our where we are at the moment, our children's and families worker was at University of Manchester, and he worshipped here quite a lot of years ago now when he was a student. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we look at this very familiar story, we ask that you will speak truth into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I live in a village in the Chilterns, a delightful village, which has some hills there, and 80 feet, or what it is, maybe it's 80 meters, I can't remember, underneath our hills, people are trying to dig a tunnel, and they're trying to dig a tunnel to build a new railway line to Manchester. I don't know whether HS2 is ever going to arrive in Manchester, or whether the government, whichever the government will be in the next few months, will cancel it or not. 
It seems like a project which started okay with a cost of about 30 or 35 billion and is now designed to come to 100 billion and take a lot longer than planned. Or maybe it'll never happen. I think one of the things about the story that we read today is to ask ourselves the question, have we started something well and are we prepared to keep going until the end? Because actually starting things is not necessarily that difficult. Keeping going and bringing things to conclusion can sometimes be very tough. So we've, you've been through the story, we've been through the story here of Abraham, the great patriarch, the father of many nations, the promise of God being fulfilled, of Isaac being born, and again, uh, that sense of prayer and God fulfilling his promises. And today we pick up the story of Isaac in his declining years, as he's gone blind, as he knows that he has to pass on the blessing. And passing on the blessing is not just passing on the very considerable material wealth which he'd accumulated, but actually passing on the mission of God to keep God's truth to the people forever and to be a forerunner to the Son coming to redeem the world. And this story today, full of lies, deceit, deception, is an incredible story told in great detail. I remember it from days of Sunday school. You probably also remember it from hearing it many times. And I think if I'd been the author of this, as a human author, I wouldn't have written the story like this. I'd have had a story of, you know, twins who were born, who went through life together. Yeah, they argued, because twins always argue, kids argue, don't they? But actually... Um, they got together as they grew up and they went through things and they evaluated their talents and techniques and abilities and everything else. And Esau eventually says um, to his brother Jacob, who's the younger one, yeah, look, I know actually you're a better manager and a better people person and you're going to be much better running the clan. Why don't you take the blessing and I'll just serve you? But of course the story is nothing like that. The story is of absolute family conflict, lies, taking God's name in vain, apparent disaster and everything else. I think the first thing I want to say, and it's something I'm sure you hear so many times here, is this just reminds me of the authenticity of Scripture. The Bible deals with real situations. It comes to us when we're having tough times, and it shines a light And it doesn't condemn us, first of all. It encourages us that our God reaches to us through the pages of history, through people who have found God in the most desperate of circumstances. Indeed, that was actually how I became a Christian. As a young teenager in hospital, very ill, I'd rejected all all ideas of Christian faith years before. And then I reached and picked up a book with a brown paper cover and it was a Gideon's Bible, and I turned it to the middle, and it was Psalms. And the psalmist, and I was very ill at the time, the psalmist was talking about desperate situations. And suddenly I knew that God was alive, and God met me there in that place. 
So we're reading a story which reaches right into the depths of our being because it deals with us as God is alongside his people and never lets them go. I think the first thing, therefore, that I want to say is that that we know our world is sinful, but God never, never, never gives up. And so we come to this story that Isaac, at the age of 40, has married a woman of faith from the clan, from the tribe that God has chosen. But his wife, Rebecca, is unable to have children. So what does Isaac do? And you went through the story. He prays. He prays. He knows that's the answer. He's picked something up of that from Abraham. And Rebecca conceives, and there are twins, as you read the story earlier, twins in her womb. Esau comes out first, Jacob next. And the prophecy, the word of God there, is that the older will serve the younger. Not the conventional route. Not what you would expect. But God is saying right at the start, I have plans, I have a way. This is what's going to happen. And that actually, I'm guessing that uh, Rachel, Rebecca, must have gone and told uh, that to Isaac. And Isaac must have thought that was pretty strange. And you know the rest of the story is the birthright was sold and you went through it for... uh, a bowl of soup or a bowl of meal or whatever else. But what God is beginning to say is right at the beginning is, my ways are not your ways. My ways are much higher than your ways. I have plans and purposes which I will work out. And you need to trust me. And I think one of the things that we as Christians, as people of God, need to continue to learn is to put our trust in Almighty God. And so time passes by in this story. Isaac has gone blind or nearly completely blind, the story that was so beautifully read for us. And he decides he must give Esau his blessing. Despite the fact that God has said something else. And this next bit, I'm going to go into speculation and this may not be right, but let me, let me tell you how I read this story. If you go back, you read that Isaac was praying. If you get to this point, you don't read that Isaac is praying anymore. Maybe he was, but scripture doesn't tell us that. What you get is that this is a man who is blind. He wants to pass on the inheritance. He likes his older son. His older son is the favorite. He likes the fact that he's a hunter and goes out. He likes the food he's got. There's something of the sense of Isaac has settled down to material comforts and conventional wisdom. And maybe society is squeezing him into that particular mold. So he calls in Esau. 
apparently secretly. You would have expected this to be public. You would have expected if he were going to have a ceremony to pass the blessing on to, <coughs> pardon me, denote the next patriarch, that that would be something public. But Isaac seems to be doing this covertly and he says to Esau, I want to give you the blessing, go out, kill, get some of the food that I really like, bring it in, and I'll give you the blessing. Esau goes. Rebecca is listening in. You get a sense that maybe this rift has grown between Isaac and his wife. And she's been planning because she knows not just what God wants, she knows what she wants as well. Because favoritism is key to her, favoritism for her younger son, Jacob. So she calls him and said, quick, let's do something. You go out and get some goats. Bring them in. Kill them. I'll cook them. I'll make the food just as your father likes. Then you go in and ask for the blessing. And he says, but, you know, hold it, I can't really do that. Uh, I'm not hairy like my brother is and everything else. And she says, don't worry. I've got a solution. Here's the skin of the goats. You can put it on so when he tests you, here's Esau's best clothes. So they do it. And Jacob goes in. And he says, here I am. And father says, so you don't sound. You don't sound like Esau. That's Jacob's voice. And he says, yeah, I am. And then, but how did you do it so quickly? The Lord gave me success. I'm even prepared to take the Lord's name in vain to get what I want. And the story goes, and of course, Isaac gives him the blessing. And the blessing means that he's making him patriarch, head. He's got some substantial portion of the wealth, probably not all of it. But he is the one who is entrusted to run the family, the household, to actually be keepers of the truth of God, of Yahweh. And then, of course, you know, Esau comes back, having killed an animal, cooks the food, goes in. And Isaac realizes what has happened and he's been tricked. And he wails and laments. And Esau says, but give me the blessing. But it's too late. The blessing has been given. They've done, in a sense, what God wanted, but in entirely the wrong way. And as far as we can tell, although Isaac was doing this apparently in some haste and somehow we tend to think that means he was about to die, it looks like Isaac lived for quite a lot of years after that. And we have no idea how God would actually have worked out his plan and his purposes. But what Rebecca had done, what Jacob had done, was to respond to a situation which was just a mess. And as you continue the story, you will see what happens. And I guess the question is, what do we, what do we learn? What do we take from this story? Well, we take, whoops, I think we've gone too far there. Maybe that's time for me to shut up and finish. Maybe somebody could rescue me from that and put up the third and fourth points. What we actually learn eventually is that we're a people of irrepressible hope. 
that God is God and God is Lord and God will work his purposes out. Can I draw out some lessons that I think come from this passage? You must test them and see if they do. And it's all about whether we are following God closely or whether we're in a process of drift, whether we loved God at first and somehow we've become rather comfortable with our lives and comfortable with our circumstance and we've pushed God into a corner. My wife and I were driving a few years ago now down through um, on a freeway in the United States going actually back to a holiday home which we were staying in and we were doing just under the speed limit probably about 60 miles an hour when a car, an older car came past us at some speed but not enormous speed and then dramatically as it came past us something happened the car literally skewed in front of us the front went down it flipped 180 degrees onto its head travelling I guess about 70 miles an hour and then flipped again back upright and landed in the ditch beside the road we pulled up, others pulled up Amazingly, the car didn't burst into flames. People managed to pull the doors open and the driver and passengers got out safely. I don't actually know, of course, what happened to make that car go wrong. But I'm guessing two things. First of all, that it was an old car and that the people there had stopped doing the maintenance. I'm guessing the front wheel just became disengaged to get it to happen like that. But I'm also guessing that the owners of that car were no longer paying attention to the things they should have paid attention to. And they were lucky to escape with their lives. Scripture continues to warn us to keep alert because our enemy, the devil, will always try to distract us, to divert us from God's plans for us. So I want to suggest some things that we should be thinking about. First of all, in this story, and in this story you see, you know, before you get to Moses and the law and all of this being sort of written down, you begin to see traditions being established and probably forgotten. But one of the traditions that had come through from Abraham was a tradition of prayer of prayer and prayer. And as I said, I wonder whether Isaac had stopped praying as much as he should. And not just praying, but you see that Isaac goes out to meditate. And I guess the first question for us to ask ourselves is, are we continuing to pray? Or has prayer somehow got squeezed out? Do we have that daily time? If we're married, how is our relationship, our prayer relationship with our spouse? How is that going? Do we pray together regularly? Do we listen to God? Do we ask God about the future direction for our lives? Do we trust him day by day? Secondly, we know that they had a history of storytelling. They would tell the stories of God, this amazing, amazing oral tradition. 
they would learn these stories by heart. We now have this written down in Scripture. And again, the question is, are we still focused on Scripture? This word is true. This is the word that constantly transforms the world when the world goes off course. And so the question is, are we continuing to study the word of God as we should? The third area, I think, is these people clearly learnt to worship. You see it again in the stories that come later of picking up worship. You see this theme of worship coming through. Do we continue to worship? I think it's interesting if you look at the history of revivals, how you see that in revivals people were often given bits of the Bible to hang around and small hymn books as well. These days I guess we've got it all electronically. But how much is worship both together but actually as part of our daily lives, the kind of music we listen to, the way that God can speak into our hearts and beings. And then I think the final area that I would suggest is I wonder just how much this man, Isaac, was really accountable. Actually, how much Esau was accountable, how much Jacob was accountable, how much Rebecca was accountable? Did they listen to wise counsellors? As I said, the church I went to in North America, which is actually an amazing church with a huge witness and huge outreach, probably the most successful outreach to homeless in Manhattan, seeing people who are on crack cocaine and other things, their lives transformed people brought back and brought to Christian faith. It went wrong, actually. It went wrong because there was too much pressure on the rector and he became unwell. It's public. And sadly, there was no one able to hold him to account. No one able to get next to him and say there's something happening here. What can we do? How can we help you? And there were no systems in place and people felt powerless and everything else. And actually that then led for him, sadly, from that depression into alcoholism because he just felt alone and to the end of his ministry. And actually he was just about to be made a bishop in the church. And he's a great friend of ours. And now, praise God, he's fully restored and better because he found help. I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves, are we trying to live our Christian lives alone? Because that's not ever what God intended. He intended us to be part of a family, to be together, to hold each other, to pray for each other, to love each other, to care for each other, to be accountable to each other to be able to challenge each other in love. And as you continue to live here, as you continue to minister in this area, you have a right to expect that people in this family will hold you up in prayer and support and love and concern. 
and members of this family have a right to expect that you will do that too. Because we're God's family. And so the final point, the point that actually I alluded to. I've got a list of questions for if and when I get to heaven is to uh, ask God. There are all sorts of things I want to ask him that I don't understand and the list gets longer every day. And one of the things is, why does God take so long to do things? Why does he not do things in my time scale? I know what I want and I'd like it now because I live in a kind of instant society. One of the things that we know as the hymn writer writes is that the mills of God grind slow, but they grind exceeding fine. God will do things his way and in his time. In 2001, we set out a draft of what peace in Northern Ireland might look like. It was a very rough, very early draft, how we'd get there. And we said to government, you've got to change the way you do things. Because government used to send a minister in, and ministers hated being made Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. It was a job where their lives were at risk. They had police, armed guards with them all the time. And so they'd try and do it for a year and then leave, and somebody else would come in. And they all wanted to bring a solution. And our registry, the files in Stormont, were full of solutions to the Northern Ireland problem. And actually, every one of them had a point. The government hadn't tried the long haul. And what we set out was, we're in for the long haul. We said this may take 20 years, 25 years. And then even when there's peace, it will take another 25 to 50 years to really be embedded. It took 17 years. We nearly got there a couple of times before, before the Good Friday Agreement was signed. I think that's a small illustration of what the Christian life is like. God takes us through slowly and steadily, but he holds our hand and he'll never let us go. May we pray together. Father, we read the story of deceit, lies, everything apparently going wrong. Yet we've read the end of the book too and we know that things come right. Thank you that you're the same God. You love us the same way. You hold our hands and you will never let us go. If we've drifted, we're sorry. We return to you again today and pray that we might walk closely with you. In Jesus' name, amen.